There are many things in life that take us down, just take us really, really down. And I think one thing that gets supremely overlooked in the process of giving birth to a beautiful, beautiful new baby is the risk of postpartum depression in women. So if you've experienced it, you already know what we're discussing. But if you haven't, just picture not knowing who you are. Like you think you know depression, but picture being hospitalized for over 24 hours and medicated right after you just had one of the most joyful experiences of your life. Picture that it could last three to six months and that's only if it's reported to a health professional. What if you have no idea what the signs are of postpartum depression, even if the doctors told you? What if you don't prepare yourself? Today we're gonna intertwine suicide and postpartum depression. Lisa's coming on to share with us in our safe space today and I'm very appreciative for her vulnerability of this story. Stick with us friends, we love you. Hey friends, joining us today is Lisa Gerard. It is an old friend of mine from back in the day. We've both yeah. moved away. Um, she lives in Kansas City now and I'm in Wichita, but we have been reminiscing for the past hour on so many different things and perspectives that we honestly never thought that we would get the chance to talk about, right? So. Right. You've come on to talk to us today about um, suicide loss, uh, your own suicide ideation, and then one very big overlooked thing that we would like to intertwine today, which is postpartum depression, um, anxiety attacks, and definitely how we are helping these people in the middle of a crisis. So um, your story is riveting, first of all. Thank you so much for bringing it here, showing it to us, and then feeling comfortable enough to talk to me about it because, again, the things that we're about to get into, you already made me tear up. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here to be able to share this. I think it's wonderful that you've made this space for us, so thank you for that. I really appreciate that. I want us all to feel safe enough to, you know, learn and be ourselves, so I appreciate you saying that. Um, where do you want to start, Lisa? We have so much. Thank you again, but... Are we going to start with Sarah? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm actually going to start by sharing somebody else's story, um, Sarah's story. And um, it's kind of where everything started for me. Um, but when I was in high school back in Pennsylvania, a family friend, she was more like a cousin to me, um, we grew up together. And she... Um, her, her mom was my grandmother's best friend. So even though we weren't really cousins, I always kind of grew up thinking she was one or just kind of felt like one. And um, she was somebody that I really looked up to. Um, she had, you know, her parents would have these big parties and we'd go out and play and they had like this, I don't know. When I was little, it felt huge, but there was this, like, wooded area that we'd go out and play in and be explorers and stuff, and then, you know, as we got older, things kind of transitioned, and she would be, like, the older sister I didn't have, um, you know, she would, she was the first person that told me when she was wearing a bra, she was like, hey, I'm wearing a bra, and I was just like, how's that, you know? <laughs> when do I get my bra? <laughs> you know, and it was just, even though I only got to see her a few times a year, usually it was always like coming home 
you know, it was somebody that was as much my family as anybody else that's in my family. Um, and when she was 15, she was experiencing some cyberbullying. Um, and there was, I'm, I'm sure there was other things, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't think it was all just the cyberbullying, but, um, that definitely played a huge part into it. And she took her own life, um, when she was 15. And I, I was a year younger than her, so I was 14 at the time. Um, and I found out after basketball practice, I was doing basketball tryouts, and um, my mom, I told my mom the wrong lo- location of the tryouts, and so she pulls up, and she she's late. She's really late because I told her the wrong place, but she went to a different school, and where I lived, everything's very spaced out. So it takes you forever to get from point A to point B. And so she gets there, and I think she's frustrated with me. And I was like, Mom, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. And she's like, it's not that. And I'm still sitting in the car, and our neighbor was in the car with us, too. We were both, my mom was picking us both up. And she tried to make conversation, and my mom just, she's like eerily quiet. And then all of a sudden, she's like, did you hear anything at school today? What, another school? any rumors and I was like no and she said well I need to talk to you about Sarah and I was like what about Sarah Sarah took her life last night she shot herself um my world changed right then and there like because I didn't think that was possible that wasn't something that I could conceive as um as a reality, my, you know, my 14-year-old brain was not comprehending what my mom was saying. And uh, my neighbor sitting in the back seat, and she, I remember she puts her hand up on my shoulder, and she's rubbing my shoulder, and I'm just sitting there going, like, what? You know, and, you know, it was at the cusp of, you know, when you're 14, everything seems so dramatic and in that moment I realized all the drama in my life up until that point meant nothing I really I saw a very real side of um really what the songs you know the emo songs we were listening to and the at 14 years old everything seemed you know up until that point everything seemed so important and so I don't know, dramatic, I guess, for lack of a better word. And then in that moment, I'm sitting there in the car, and I'm, like, breathless. You know, I, I can't. Suddenly, all the things that I was listening to in those songs, they were a reality. And I started feeling pain from somebody else. I, I think it was my first real experience with empathy at that deep of a level, is how bad did she have to feel to get to this point? And from there, I kind of made it like my mission to make sure that nobody ever felt that way again. And so that's kind of where it starts for me, because losing her and seeing the aftermath of, you know, what it did to her family and friends and knowing how much I ached and how hurt I was by missing her. I never wanted anybody to 
I thought this, she must have felt 10 times worse than this to reach that point. You know, like as bad as I'm hurting now, she had to have been hurting worse. And, you know, it became very personal to me. Um, you know, I spoke with her mom this morning to make sure I had permission to share her story. And, um, you know, the one thing that she said that she just wanted everybody to know is that they didn't know. There was no warning signs like we think we are supposed to see. You know, there was no... Um, there was nothing there to say, hey, this is going to happen. And I think the reason that I wanted to come on this show and start talking about these issues is largely because no one's talking about it. And maybe if somebody had been talking about it, then maybe she wouldn't have felt that isolated. Maybe somebody out there isn't feeling themselves right now. And maybe they can reach out and, and not have the same end. Well, you bring up a lot of really good points. Um, I love that you reached out to Sarah's mom to make sure that you had permission for her story and that your mom was able to even give us a little more insight into, hey, like, I know we have hotlines. I know, you know, we're all like, hey, there's a suicide hotline. There's this, there's that. Wear this ribbon. Here's this T-shirt. But at the same time, we're all 100% still struggling with understanding why these people individually take their lives no matter what national hotline is out there or what help is out there. So she brought up the the worst part about it is we we all know it's out there. We all know it's prevalent. But for her being like, we don't know why she did it. And we didn't have any warning signs. It truly shows how capable us as humans are, are hiding those things that kill us the most. And I don't think that we do it maliciously. I think we don't you know, at the end of the day, we don't want our loved ones to hurt as bad as we are on the inside. And that's why I specifically call it the Robin Williams, because, you know, you go out of your way to make people happy, to make them feel good, to make them feel so loved, because you would never want them to feel that way. And my heart goes out to Sarah's family, for sure, for everything that they've been through. But not to get morbid by any means, but say like I just came across this podcast And I'm pretty sure I'm going to do it tonight. And the only thing that's stopping me is obviously knowing that, you know, who's going to find me or, you know, what, what are the lasting effects on my family? Um, Can you, can you give us a little more insight into, you know, what are the lasting effects on you just for how Sarah impacted your life? And now, I mean, we're in our thirties now and this doesn't go away. Like it's still like, she's still here. You still want to know why. Right. And, you know, come October 4th, I will still cry. I will still mourn her. I will still. Um, that's the last thing I said is that I just. How do you think that you're going to kind of come numb to it, but you don't? And every time you hear the word suicide, whether it's talking about actual suicide or not, you can be at a football practice and someone says, oh, they're doing suicides, and I will think of her. Um, you know, you can be, um, one time I was at work, and somebody said, they're like, yeah, I'm trying to find that for this job of suicide, and I, I almost had a complex over it. Like, I was just like, 
am I doing that to myself right now? You know, it's because it's, it really did kind of um, incite this. I was afraid to talk about it. I didn't want to hear the word. I didn't want to. Um, I just wanted to make sure people didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I just wanted to avoid the subject altogether because it felt so painful for me and seeing how painful it was for everybody around in that moment. It was just, it was immensely painful. There was, I don't have a, a word to better describe it. And you carry that and the littlest things remind you of it constantly. So I would say that's the lasting effect. Um, and then also just really wanting to, I, I felt like I had somehow become immune to ever having suicidal thoughts or to ever feeling that way because I had seen on the other side what, you know, what, what other people go through when somebody takes their life. And I thought if I can just stop that from ever happening to somebody, if I can just be that lifeline for somebody, like my purpose in life would be fulfilled. Like I truly believe that I had to be like that it was a personal mission and I took a lot on that wasn't mine to carry, you know, trying to be the person that made everybody else better. So that was also something that I would say I took from it. So do you think obviously with suppressing everything that had happened after it had happened and obviously still being triggered by the word that that was uh, an underlying cause of the anxiety disorder that you developed later on in your teens and early 20s? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So that was probably like the precursor. Um, and then... Because I was 14 on. and about 17 is when we get into anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... I would say that's probably the best way to put it is that was definitely something that stayed with me through my teenage years that ended up taking on more and developing an anxiety attack when I couldn't start keeping up with it all, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. You know, there's a root cause for everything that we go through, and um, one of the best things that I've recently read on a random meme was um, thank your triggers for when they show up for they show you where you are not healed. And, you know, on like a mild trigger, like driving by a Brahms and wanting crinkle fries and ice cream, but I'm going to go home and, you know, eat my nutritious stuff that's going to, you know, be okay. good for me. Like those are like mild things, right? They're like mild triggers where you're like, hey, I did not stop and get those that day. But when these triggers that we're talking about come up that really just try to uproot some very deeply rooted trauma in us um, and you like you feel it rising and come up and you're like, no, 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 go back down, go back down, go back down. And I feel like that's obviously a big one. Like there's no way it's not tied to the anxiety. I'm not going to say it's like the full blown thing. But that, you know, that's three years of teenage development. And I, like, I know what it was like to be a 14-year-old girl um, and then still go through the 15, 16, and 17 year. Having that start, I mean, cataclysmic is the best way that I could describe. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, especially, I think I've always kind of been somebody, even prior to um, all of, you know, even prior to my teenage years, I was very much somebody that kind of took care of others. And, you know, I was the big sister, you know, and I was usually the friend that was trying to make everybody happy and the peacemaker, and you know. Um, and then adding kind of this self-diagnosed responsibility of being the person I felt like I had to take on the negativity of somebody else so that they would feel better. And I had a lot of friendships that weren't really friendships because I was, you know... I think what you're trying to say is you're an empath, and before you realize you're an empath, you were doing what all other empaths do, which we all have empathic tendencies, but I do believe um, there are people that are just, like, called to serve to healing like that, and in mm-hmm. your younger adolescent years, I'm the same way. Like, is if you see it in somebody, you hear it in somebody, like, you put your cape on, and if when mm-hmm. they call, you go, you know, that's what yeah. you do. You go help, and you, yeah, you'll go suck the poison out of them. But later on in life, you learn how to not put the poison into yourself. You really, you know, you got to learn transmutation and fun stuff like that. But the earlier years that you're talking about, I I mean, I hold my heart for you because I was the same exact way. Um, I always wanted to just be kind of like a refuge in a safe place. My friends would come stay with me. My friends knew that, you know, Nothing bad was going to happen to you there. And it wasn't like now it's like wholesome. Like, I want you to be safe. I want you to be comfortable. What's your favorite cookie? What's your favorite movie? Like, how are we going to get through this? Back then, it was a lot more rough around the edges of like my friends would call me and their boyfriends were being mean. And I would be like, okay, like, do you want to keep the boyfriend and get back with him? Or are we broken up? Because if we're broken up, I'll be happy to step in. You know, right. and there are, there are always like all, you know, so many like hero moments that I can think of where, I mean, now with, you know, going through a self-love journey and realizing um, you're, you are consistently abandoning yourself to still help other people. And then this instant gratification you get or this weird gratification you get from helping people, it doesn't fill the parts of yourself that you're not working on. Exactly. But I know that I have lived far more neuroplastic years of my life believing that like I was put on this earth to literally not give a shit about myself. But as long as all of the ones around me weren't suffering, I, I was the same way as you. I'm like, I don't want to lose anybody. Suicide has been a heavy topic in not just my life, but around me and my families. And I, I couldn't fathom losing anybody. And I still don't know if I will lose anybody, right? Because we never really know. It's just a constant struggle. But I actually Mm -hmm. recently lost a friend within the last few weeks. And we had uh, talked within the last year and a half. And um, I was just scrolling through Facebook and I saw his obituary. And like I thought it was an absolute joke because this kid is bright and he's, he's a Robin Williams. He's going to go out of his way to make sure that you're not in pain and you're not this and you're not in that. And he wasn't, he wasn't working on himself. He was trying, but it wasn't working. 
And there were so many other factors that I won't go into. But for me alone to get pulled back into how I knew him, because now I know that he's gone. I know that he couldn't, he just couldn't take it anymore. And he decided to leave. And I'm not mad. I have an extreme amount of compassion for anybody on the suicide spectrum, I guess you could say. Um, but I just sat there like I, I looked at my husband and I was like, I have to go outside and just like sit on the porch like just for a minute. And he's like, okay. I didn't tell him what had happened. I was like, I just need a minute. And I went outside. I'm staring at the trees. I'm staring up. I'm listening to the birds sing, the winds coming through, all this stuff. And I'm just like, I can't believe he's gone. And not that he's like gone, but I can't believe he's gone that way because he was strong when I knew him. He was, he talked me out of dark thoughts. He talked me out of bad times. Like we really were like there for each other in those moments. And still, as I'm talking about it right now, I just still can't believe that like he's gone and I'm still, I'm still processing it. And I mean, I guess I'm really thankful that we're doing this series now, but Never in a million years did I think that one of my friends would actually end their life while I was in the middle of recording a suicide series for awareness in hopes that none of my loved ones would ever even think about ending their life. Yeah, how's that for... um... Full circle, like what do you call it, you know? That was almost full circle of life, that's not what I was saying. Yeah. And I mean, really, my heart goes out to his family and everybody, but it just it really brings home like why I really want to pull apart your story. And how did Sarah's family feel afterwards? Because I wasn't his direct family member. I'm, I'm kind of like you in the story, right? Like I know the impact you had on my life. I didn't see you a lot. I have these memories with you, but you're you're not supposed to be gone and you're certainly not supposed to be gone that way. But again, I have a extreme level of compassion for you. So now, like now I'm like, I was driving my kid to daycare the other day and I started talking to him like he's in the passenger seat. Cause I believe that he was, I was like, there's no way if you, if you passed away that you're not coming to say hello to me because <laughs> Better come say hi. yeah, there's, there's just no way. Like go figure out, go figure out what you're doing up there. But you know, come okay. sit in my seat, bud. Come tell me what the other side's like. That's the only way that I can kind of like be happy about it is I could literally picture him just being like, oh, shit, I didn't mean to do that. Hold on. Take me back. Take me back. Like he would just be like that guy. So there's my morbid tree branch, but I'm still floored by the news. I can't imagine, especially right being in the middle of the series. Um, Yeah. How's that? Yeah. I mean... It, you just never know. And I mean, that's the thing that Sarah's family said. Like, she didn't leave a note, and we don't really know. We know that these things happened in her life, but other than that. We know that cyberbullying, you know, had played into it. Um, somebody, actually, the night before had been online. This was back when, um, you know, like AOL and Tip Messenger and all of that was mm-hmm. popular. They're one of those. Um, I guess they weren't apps at the time, but <laughs> I don't know, one of those apps. Yeah, things. what are they called back then? I don't know. <laughs> it was just AIM or... Yeah, uh, like chat rooms. Are you talking like MSN Messenger and stuff like that? Like little messengers. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? 
I think they're, they were actually still just called computer programs at the time. <laughs> Are we that old? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so they were, you know, chatting back and forth on the computer, and one of the girls was like, egg on, you won't do it, you know. And um, I think that also leaves this kind of, if we just knew better, or if that girl had just known better then, would things have turned out differently now? If we had been having these conversations about why you don't say things like that. Yeah, then, even if I look like I'm having a good day, how do you know that I just, like, don't want to go home and kill myself And because you are literally the biggest bitch to me for no reason? Right. Like, you're right. the one that actually pushed me over the edge. I know that I made the choice, but... Yeah, it really goes back to that thing of you have no idea what anybody's going through. So, like, be nice. And, yeah, and, and so much of that was unmonitored, and so much is unmonitored today, and we are inundated with information. And so this is something that I feel like Sarah was on, you know, we're sitting here debating what they were called even computer programs or apps, you know, it was that long ago, but it really wasn't that long ago, and technology has moved so fast in so much time that how she was feeling then, I can only imagine that with the amount of information that's available now, good and bad, and maybe it's, I think why it's so important to me to talk about Sarah and, um, you know, her story was because not only did her parents not know, or not only were there no warning signs, but there was, we don't really pay attention to how much information we absorb. And if one person's telling you that you go through with something that horrendous, and there's already, you're already going through this pivotal time in your life where, you know, you're, you're 15 years old, you're, she was picking out class rings and going to volleyball practice. And she was a normal kid. She was a good kid. She was a good student. She was, she was my role model. You know, she was somebody that I looked up to. And for her to have been able to reach that point to me was unthinkable. But now that looking back as an adult and being like, well, nobody was talking about, we were at the cusp of getting a lot of information all at once. And yet nobody was talking about what that does to mental health either. And so I really think it's important to have these conversations because it's more prevalent than we realize. Just like your friend, nobody's in. It's hard to tell. Well, to roll you into the next thing that we're getting ready to talk about, um, when I both of us knew that we were going to do this interview, we obviously had the thought of when's the last time I saw you in person, and like who was I the last time I saw you, right? So I, I pulled up my little Lisa file in my head and I thought about the first time I met you in high school when you transferred to our school and just how like I had known you in the time that I had known you while you were there and I remember thinking how nice you were how sweet you always were and I couldn't believe how nice you were always able to be constantly with how many like 
I don't even know how to say it. Just like, I don't want to be like negative, but it's just like that bitchy high school culture, the competitive, like all of that. You are always so nice to everybody. And later on, I find out that um, you have a crazy anxiety disorder that I I had no idea that you even went through at the time. Because again, I was just like, she's so sweet. She's so nice. You know, sweet and nice to me means put together because... I have a little bit of a rougher, more sarcastic exterior. Like I might love you and I might bite you. I don't really know. But you, on the other hand, like you had this underlying condition. And I mean, let's be honest, mental health wasn't a big thing when we were in high school. This is, it's, it's 100% a new slogan of mental health awareness. Um, We talking about suicide made people uncomfortable talking about death made people uncomfortable talking about even people that were medicated for depression, like they'd have to go to the nurse's office. They were 100% like stigmatized for having any bad thoughts if they had to be medicated or anything. And I mean, that's just what I remember. If anybody else has a different take, please write in. Um, But mental health awareness is 100% like Gen Z new age, in my opinion. Um, Because when I was younger, I mean, we didn't talk about it. And if you did, if you had an outburst where you're like, I just want to kill myself. You're just like, we don't talk like that. No, we don't do that here. Like, and that's. Like, yeah. I mean, there's your counseling. Yeah. No, that absolutely. Um, we didn't talk about it. Um, I know that there was, I would mention it once in a while, you know, if, if somebody would make a joke. Or if they're like, oh, I'm going to go kill myself or whatever, I'd be like, dude, that's not funny. Like, I was always like, no, that's not funny. Because I, um, you know, I lost somebody to suicide, and it was very hurtful to hear, but also, like, that's not something to joke about. And that's the only time you heard about it growing up. That's how you talked about it. It was a joke. Yeah, it was morbid 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 sense of humors to do that which I know I can honestly claim even in my younger days to just be like Jim Carrey dramatic about it like oh I'm just gonna kill mm-hmm. myself I swear like but you're right there it well it's the same thing that you brought up with like the emo culture then um we were all singing about suicide but it was really happy or yeah. like we uh I brought up the my chemical romance music video where just like this big exaggerated funeral basically and mm-hmm. I mean again influential to your homo- hormonal times like I remember I was like oh that's my funeral you yeah, know just having like, like those really like sad moments when you're just like oh maybe maybe today's the day like what's going on with me like why am I literally having conversations with myself about like like you said, suicide ideation. So when the anxiety kicked in, like when did your supposed ideation happen before the postpartum? Because when we get into the postpartum, I, we know that obviously the thought of suicide is there just from just wanting to give up on your present circumstances alone. But the 17-year-old anxiety, you met your husband when you were about 20. So did you have ideations between then? Mm, no, like I said, at that point, I really still thought I was immune. I really thought that because I had lived through losing somebody, um, at that point in my life, I'd been to a couple, I don't know, probably three or four funerals, and 
two or three of them at that point had been to suicide loss. Um, you know, I've, I've lost several people or known several people. Um, and so it really was just kind of like, I, even though I was having anxiety and I was like, oh my God, my world's crumbling down, I never was like, I need to end it all. That, or I'm not cut out for this or anything like that. That never happened. That didn't happen until much later in life. So later in life, as in, let's see, we meet our husband when we're 20. Is that where we want to start the next part of the story? Yeah, I mean, so um, my first big, like, mental health episode, I would say, I mean, from 17 to, like, 20, I knew I had an anxiety disorder. I had been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, Um, but... That meant nothing. It was just obviously a like when you mean seventeen to twenty. Sorry to interrupt you. Are you meaning like you're rotating medications to find what actually works out for you per Western medicine, or were no, you on the same medication? No, at that point I wasn't on medication at all. They just diagnosed me with generalized anxiety and sent me on my way. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, I, they didn't give me any medicine, but I think a lot of that was. Um, when I went in and I was going in as a minor, um, I had my mom in there with me, and my mom's like, let's not jump to medicine. So I think that was the only reason I didn't get put on medicine right away. Okay, that makes but, sense. Um, but then when I was 20, I met my husband. We were working together, and um, <laughs> then I ended up having an anxiety attack at work where I, my chest, I thought I was having a heart attack. I was like, I'm 20 years old, and I'm going to die of a heart attack. It was that physical. Like, it it hurt, physically hurt. And I was like doubled over and I felt like I couldn't breathe and I don't know what brought it on. To this day, I couldn't tell you what brought it on. I just had a very physical reaction to something. And um, anyway, somebody at work ended up calling an ambulance and that's, I, I went home that night. They just gave me, um, I think it was Valium, once <laughs> they gave me the first time. Right. And then, um, they sent me home and I slept for like 12 hours or something like that. And they gave you a big Valium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But, um, from there, um, I went to see a doctor and I was put on a daily medication and that's when I started going through the trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work and the ups and downs of different medications and that continued until pregnancy. This is the part that hurts my soul. Oh, sorry. I had to get a drink. Um, but yeah, so I went through I think five or six different medications in probably three years' time. My head is spinning for you thinking about alternating between five or six different medicines for my mind in just a three-year span, especially like <clears throat> tree branch, right? Um, when I went to the hospital when I was, I think I was 19 and, you know, got no diagnosis, just kind of a faulty integration system, and he uh, put me on medicine I just remember feeling so lost and I didn't really know if this was going to help me, but I didn't really know what else to do. Right. 
And then mm-hmm. when I found just the term neuroplasticity and I started reading about like how our brains form habits, addictions, and all of this. And I realized that these pills were coming in to do my job for me. Then I I still felt like controlled and limited. Like I wasn't going to be the fullest potential of myself. This is my personal journey. I don't want to trigger anybody that actually takes medicine. This is just what I went through. I was just like, you know, I've already been through so much. I've already fought through so much. I I don't understand why I feel like these pills are going to control my mind. And, you know, after they gave me one of the weirdest concoctions I've ever had in my whole legal life of taking any sort <laughs> of drugs, um, I took two pills that the doctor prescribed only one other person because he said that they would, the last guy went crazy. He said, so yeah, if anything's wrong, if you feel like killing yourself, just come to the ER, we'll get you taken care of. Which, I mean, I assume means that they, like, put you in a padded room and detox you. I don't really know because I never did it. I went home and I took the pills and I I was null and void. I did not exist in my body. If you shot me, I would have been like, that's okay. We'll just get the blood cleaned up. It's fine. Like, I, I had never been so scared of a drug in my life, honestly. And I couldn't believe that a doctor gave it to me, for one, And then two, the, you know, basically the banner on the bottle was, if you feel like killing yourself, like, go to the hospital. When I already came here before, because I'm pretty sure that, like, I'm starting down that dark path of, like, I don't think I care enough to figure this out. So within a week of uh, throwing the pills down the toilet, I, I had a friend give me a bag of shrooms. And then uh, within an hour, I'm talking to Jesus Christ about how this is illegal and that shit that I just threw down my toilet is legal. And we (laughs) talked about so many amazing things, but that was like my first like real spiritual experience between like dealing not only with like the things in your mind, but just really breaking away and realizing that there's more to the suffering than just the physical Western westernized version of um, mental health suffering. I think there's a spiritual suffering that we're all realizing that we're all coming into individually. And um, I think that that also needs to be spoken about too more because it's not just always about like, oh, I hate my job. I hate this. I hate this. This is why I'm like, there's something going on in your soul and these depressions and these triggers and this big red button in the back of your head of fuck it. Um, it's, it's just telling you like you're going the wrong way in some aspect of your life. I'm not trying to take away like chemical imbalances and the science behind it and just like go strictly woo woo for people out there. Um, I think there's a blend of spirit and science that needs to come back into mainstream medicine to actually heal all of us that have these thoughts, whether we want to act on them or not. And someone who, you know, still is struggling and coming to terms with how anxiety has really shaped your world and how you want to get out of it, I know that um, you're in a very strong part of your journey at just realizing all of the things that have happened to you to kind of shape the way that you act today. Right, absolutely. We really do need to take a more holistic approach to medicine. Um, Like you said, yes, science is great. And spiritual side of things is great. Combining them is where we're going to see the most healing, though. I really, I, I, I believe that. Um, 
So, anyways, I like that you kind of went off on that side note there. Tree branch, yes. Back to you, darling. Um, I think it's important, you know, as well, that we need to definitely take a different approach to medicine because, as, as we're saying, like, I was going through different, trying different medications. And, of course, okay, so while this is all happening, I'm, like, turning 21, and I'm partying, and I've got all this other, and now I've got these substances, like, one minute I'm on, you know, the Paxil, or I don't even know all the names of them, and then I'm going out for a night of partying, and then the next day I'm supposed to be changing my medication, and my body was a wreck mm-hmm. from it. Um, my... And then we jumped straight into, I turned 23, I got pregnant, and they said, stop taking your medications. It's not okay for the baby. And I just just stopped cold turkey. And that's hard. I mean, that's like, I mean, there was there was real withdrawal there. There was real, like, jitters and cold sweats and actual very physical. And I was like, what did they have me on? Yeah, but also, like, what are you and your baby going through through this, like, detox of your medicine while you're mm-hmm. pregnant? Like, what it, what's, what's this sending to your baby? Yeah. I, and, That's the and only I, thing I think of when you tell me this story. I'm like, they took you off medicine cold turkey when you're pregnant and didn't give any form of relief. I am, mm-mm. No. I don't get I'm it. Not, it was no... There was no follow-up on it. It was like, hey, you're going to have an appointment at whatever it was, eight weeks, ten weeks. I don't remember. But when I called them, they were like, okay, we'll stop taking that medicine. We'll see you in a few weeks. Just kind of waving at you. Bye. Yeah. And this was what? This was about ten years ago, did you say? Yeah. So my son will be turning nine Yeah, so that, including the pregnancy, I would say about 10 years. I always just like to place things in time when people tell stories. Because obviously in 2022, like, I don't think that actually happens anymore, but I don't know. But 10 years ago, I can see them not having, like, enough research guidelines or anything. They just know pregnant women don't take the medicine and they stop. So then I always... You know, before we, like, get people on, like, some pitchforks or anything, we're like, keep in mind, this story is 10 years old. So. Yeah. Please. Um, And I'm sure it's much better now. Yeah, we have to hope it's much better than cold turkeying a pregnant woman off of antidepressants. Yeah. So that was, that was not fun. Um, And then, but the rest of my pregnancy with my son was pretty uneventful. Um. He came into the world, you know, and I jumped right into motherhood. And um, looking back now, I can say that I had postpartum depression with my first child, as well as my second, which we'll get into that later. But um, but it wasn't like it wasn't like I, I never felt any kind of negativity towards my baby. I never felt any kind of again. The, the suicide ideation didn't really come up for me yet at that point. It was more just kind of like not taking care of myself. Like I wasn't showering daily or, you know, every two days or whatever. I wasn't brushing my teeth daily. I wasn't taking care of myself physically. And, and to say that now, I'm just like, God. Ugh, that's so my- gross, right? Like just to judge yourself hardcore. 
I'm like sitting there thinking like, first of all, like props to my husband because like he dealt <laughs> with like that, you know, the mm-hmm. whole mess. But props to myself too because I didn't realize I was going through it then and I got through it, you know. Um, that's very something true. That, that's something that's very important. Um, yes, that was almost 10 years ago and nobody was really talking about, I knew postpartum depression was a thing, but I didn't know what that really meant and what that really looked like. So I couldn't recognize it in myself. My husband couldn't really recognize it because it wasn't talked about then. I think we have gotten better about talking about it, but. I think the one reference I have on like postpartum depression and baby blues, if you want to tie them in, even though they're obviously different, but. Like, Oprah tied them in together with, like, a Cindy Crawford episode, I think it was. She came out and was like, I had the baby blues. Which that one is when you literally, like, you're so depressed you can't take care of your kid. Yours was, you you were obviously still adjusting to mommyhood and then still having integration issues along with hormonal imbalances. Um, That's the only reference I have growing up for postpartum depression. Um... I remember getting a checkup after the doctor or like after having the baby and it just felt like kind of a checklist of uh, how do you feel one to 10 scale, one to 10 scale, did it, did it, did it. Like if I had postpartum, I didn't understand how they were actually going to find out for me was how I felt going into it. And I thought that I 100% was going to get it, so I prepared myself for it. Not like, I'm going to talk myself through this and educate myself so much. I was like, nope, we're going down in the trenches, bud. Like, right when she comes out, the next three to six months of your life, like, look out for this, look out for this. And, you know, just like, I even had to have a talk with myself and be like, you have to be honest with your doctors about how you're mentally feeling. You can't go in and be like, oh, no, everything's fine. Like, new motherhood's great. I totally know what I'm doing, and I'm acclimating properly. And, oh, yes, the seven layers of my stomach that you cut open and then sewed me together like a fucking warrior. Yeah, doing great with that, too. I love it. Like, when am I having another one? Like, pregnancy in America is so freaking amazing. Look at my post body. Look at all the weight I lost. Look, I have abs back. Like none of that shit happened by the way, if you're listening, but just the facade of pregnancy and how literally I just said seven layers of my skin were cut open. Me and along Mm -hmm. with every other woman who had a cesarean, we were sewn up and then they shoved a baby on our boob and they're like, welcome to motherhood. It's totally normal. This is totally normal. And we are the only mammal that can be cut that deep and survive. And everybody still doesn't treat us like superheroes every day. Isn't that insane that, like, so both of mine were C-section babies. And so... Congratulations, sis. I'm right there with you. Girl, I thought the first time I wasn't so bad. The second time, I was just like, how did I... Is my body really doing this? It is clearly doing this but it is um I don't know well my first with my first I didn't think I was gonna have a c-section it was an emergency c-section and I was completely unconscious for it so I don't have any kind of I didn't really have that benchmark of what to expect when I went into my second c-section um because last time I just woke up and had a baby (laughs) on me you know they just handed me a baby when I woke up 
Um, my you're, like, was, you're the one that's been in my stomach this whole time? <laughs> wow. Okay, that's pretty gnarly because I was awake for my C-section, but I can't imagine just, like, waking up and they're like, here's your kid. <laughs> my husband was standing there with him. He's holding him and he's like, I woke up and I'm looking around and, like, I'm still very numb all over, you know, trying to gather my wits about me. And um, he's like, Lisa, he's over here. And I just started crying because I was like, oh, thank God he's alive. Because when they went, when they sent me back, I didn't know what was happening. I just knew that they were putting me under and cutting me open. And, you know, I, I just cried and, you know, tears of relief. And then, of course, joy that I'm finally meeting this. A tiny little baby that I've been carrying in me. Um, but it was a really, I don't know if it's luck or what, but it was a really easy recovery the first time. Or so I thought, I guess, compared to what I was expecting it to be. Second time, not the, no. That was, it was a whole different ball game. Yeah, so let's get into let's get into Ember because this story is the one that needs needs to be reassessed for future patients, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So and um, this is really where um, everything's changed for me as a person. Um <laughs> I know, it's it's hard to get not get fidgety when you're about to say these things. Yeah, um, but my pregnancy with Ember was very complicated through, it was just, I had a, a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in your lungs, um, and then a month later I had a TIA, which is a transient ischemic stroke, or a, it's transient ischemic activity or something like that, it's a mini stroke, um, and, you know, I was giving myself shots in the stomach twice a day, two shots twice a day. Um, I was, you know, having a lot of problems with breathing, which obviously plays on anxiety. And, of course, I'm pregnant, so I can't take anything for it. I can't, I wasn't, at that point, I knew there was medication available. I just chose not to take it because I didn't want any kind of withdrawal symptoms for the baby. Um you know, I, I approached medicine very differently the second pregnancy after realizing how I came off of it with my first pregnancy wasn't the way it was supposed to happen. You know, I approached it very differently with my second pregnancy. And then there, then I have a condition where I feel like I can't breathe, you know, and that's a very real kind of trigger for me for anxiety was like, even though I knew I was breathing and I could put that full box of the pulse box little, you know, finger thing that reads and tells you what your oxygen level is. I had one of those that I would check compulsively to make sure that there was enough oxygen in my blood because I just constantly felt like I couldn't breathe. Um, that made for a very difficult pregnancy. And then I had Ember. Um, I got the screening too, the check, you know, yes or no, if you feel this way or that way, our scale one to ten. I knew that I was going to struggle with postpartum. I was. I knew what to look for this time around. I knew that I had struggled with it with my son. You know, hindsight 2020, I was able to look back and see that that's what I was dealing with when I was, you know, felt like every keep up with my son. It was, you know, postpartum depression. 
And then I came at home with a script for medicine. I knew that I was going to take it. I was going to be fine. I was approaching it, like you said, kind of full head on. And um, when she was three months old, I actually ended up having a ner nervous breakdown that sent me to the hospital. Um, and that's where um, suicidal thoughts and the suicidal ideation really come into play for me. So it was actually more recently than, than anything. Um, you know, almost 20 years of thinking that you can be immune to those thoughts and realizing you're not, that's, that's a hard hit to take. I think we are all truly like one big life event or tragedy away from doing and being things that we never thought that we would do or be or even act or feel. I know that sounds really barbaric just to like say it with no context, but um, I mean, there's people that have, I mean, suddenly lost loved ones like their husband or their wife. You know, we all know that going through COVID. We all know someone that we lost like that. Um, but they're, they're a completely different person. They've, their whole reality, everything, you know, was warped. And, um, I think when you sit on a certain fence, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling like you have an, an immunity to, um, not wanting to kill yourself. Like, I think, I think that's a good thing. The, my favorite part about what you're discussing with us now is, hey, for over 20 years, I thought I was immune to this. And I have, like, I have these things kind of like in the undertow of my life that keep popping up as anxiety is this, this is popping up, this is popping up. And then, you know, finally one day everything comes to a head and you have this nervous breakdown and um, then the thought comes back, right? It's like some ghostly character. It's like, aha, I've come. Are you ready? Are you ready to dance, my love? And then you're right. like, we shall dance, my friend. And, and it's nothing but circles and spiraling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so for me, um, that's, that's exactly what it was. It's just, you know, like I said, I, I really did feel like there was some, something about me that made me immune to ever having those feelings to suddenly um, uh, it was something silly. My husband and I ended up getting into an argument. Um, I was exhausted. I'm postpartum. I breastfeed. Um, and then I stopped breastfeeding about six months, or not six months, six weeks. And I carried a lot of guilt for that still. So I was feeling, already kind of feeling the postpartum issues of like feeling like I was failing, you know, this is second baby, I wasn't able to breastfeed this time around, now am I giving my first child enough love, am I giving enough attention to both kids equally with this newborn baby, and um, I was very, very fortunate that my husband was able to take, you know, the first six weeks off of work, and so I had that cushion of time that was very helpful for me. Um, I'll try not to get on a tangent about maternity care. Right. <laughs> That's a but whole episode I, on its own. I know not everybody 
have that option. But if you're somebody listening right now and you're either pregnant or recently had a baby and you're feeling like you're completely alone and you're like, you got six weeks with your husband at home, I, I know I'm one of the fortunate ones because I know that is not the norm in this country. So I do, my heart goes out to anybody that has to go through postpartum without a partner right off the bat. Like, that is just insanity, and we we push that on mothers way too much. Um, so that's all I'll say about that. Um, <laughs> outside of that six-week mark when he went back to work, I really started, even though I was taking the medication, and I was like, I know what to look for, I still kind of felt like, okay, I can handle this. I can handle this. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I just got to get through this to the next day. Take one day at a time, one step at a time. And then, you know, of course, the baby wasn't sleeping well, and um, I was exhausted, and my body still, I still have hormones crashing, and I'm now on a medication that I thought was going to be helpful, but probably wasn't all that helpful at the time. Um, yeah, it feels like you're taking uppers and downers at the same time with your hormones crashing and then this anxiety medicine going in you. You're, it, that's what it is. I mean, one minute you're crying, one minute you're laughing, and now you're, this medicine's supposed to be leveling it out, but really it's just numbing surface stuff, and all that's bubbling up underneath. So that, that stuff hasn't gone away. Um, so... Anyways, I'm exhausted at this point, and um, I just, my husband said that, you know, he was going to have to work late the next day, and I was like, no, I can't do this by myself any longer. Like, you can't work late. You have to come home. And he's like, I can't. I have to, I'm going to have to work a few hours later, something to that extent, and I just lost it. I mean, and when I say I lost it, I was, I was bawling. I started pulling at my hair. I was pulling, literally pulling my hair out literally pulling my hair out. Um, at one point, I got up and went to the bedroom and was, like, kind of, like, laying over the bed. And, but, like, in such, it was such a hopelessness at that moment where I said, what's happened to me? I've lost everything. I've lost control of everything in my life. I can't even feed my child properly. I'm holding on all this guilt about how I can't give enough, maybe I'm not giving enough love to both of my children, and, and I need to give more, but I felt so, so depleted in that moment that I, I, there's nothing more here for me to give. I've got nothing. I'm, I'm maxed out, and honestly, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe this, and that's where I would say that the whole, um, you know, when we talk about suicide ideation, looking back on it now, that's where I was feeling that those were the thoughts I was having when I felt like maybe the world just really was better off at this point because I wasn't able to keep up. I wasn't able to give anymore. And I've always been a giver. We talked about how that's, that's, that was my purpose. That's what I, I took it very personal to make sure that everybody else around me was happy. And postpartum played into it, but all of that, it, I mean, one person can only take so much, and that's why that was my kind of, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say rock bottom because I think everybody can probably find 
you know, if you ask for it, you can fall deeper. So we're not going to, we're not going to accept that energy. Yeah, we're not going to label that. <laughs> so in that um, moment of helplessness, did you, I don't, obviously you didn't think about that now, but do you understand Sarah more now when you, when you feel that hopelessness that hit mm-hmm. you that time? Like when you're like, how bad could she have actually felt in her own personal experience to obviously make the decision that she did, but do you do you have that perspective even more now after feeling like literally like the worthlessness on top of loneliness on on top of all of the you know bad vibrations that none of us want to feel these days? Yeah, absolutely. Um, she, you know, I kind of already had it in my head that she had already probably felt terrible like it's like I said before you know I could take my and imagine that she had felt so much worse to reach the point she had but it's a whole different ball game when you're on the other side of the fence and and you're the one that's feeling that way you know like how did I but oh my god there she is and um I guess you know it was a different situation because she was you know, 15, and I was older, but really, um, the medical, our hormones and the medical effects, I essentially was going through a different kind of puberty, like she was at that time, you know, the, the hormones, and so there was definitely that correlation, too, where it was, like, on top of all of this outside pressure and inside feeling and hormones just, and, and going crazy and nobody really treating that correctly because we're not talking about it and you know then we weren't talking about it and now we're just kind of like oh do you have postpartum depression here's a pill um I can definitely look back and say that she had to have been so scared and that's because that's is the one thing that the one emotion that comes out for me the most that I never really um, considered her having before was the fear that comes with it too and, and just being really afraid of your own feelings and your own thoughts. That is a wonderful thing to highlight. So do you feel like um, finishing that last story because I know it's pretty heavy hitter. Yeah, no, we can. Um, which one? Which one? So um, you're pulling your hair out and you're laying on the bed. You're having, you know, suicide ideation is coming to you where you're like, now I understand. Now I'm not immune. Yeah. I am capable of feeling the thought of maybe I should just give up. And not necessarily like I'm a burden, but like, they would be better off without me. He can actually just, like, figure out how to take care of the kids besides having me around and having these outbursts, these quote-unquote right. outbursts, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, this part, if I cry, I apologize. You already made me um, cry, like, three times already, so please join in on the tears. Um, so we, I got out of the hospital that night. They said, you know, okay, you're not a threat to yourself anymore. Um, 
you're not a threat to anybody else, you can go home. Um, but while I was in the hospital, I didn't know I was going to go home up until they said I can go home. Like, there was this whole span of time of I had no idea what was being said about me outside there. So basically how it went down is um, pulling out my hair. I'm crying. I'm unable to stand. I'm hyperventilating. Um, my husband called my mom. And he was like, I don't, he's like, I've, I've tried everything I know to do. She, I, she's like, you know, I don't know what to do. And my mom said, sounds like you need to call an ambulance. So, um, he did. He called 911. And, um, two EMTs show up. Well, first, first the police officer showed up. And then she went to the EMT. Um, they asked me all these questions, you know, and, and they decide, you know, okay, you're probably safe, so let's go to the hospital and get you checked out. So before I even really left my home, they're like, okay, this happened for a reason, but we can recognize that you're calmed down now. Like, never once was there any kind of, like, I never gave them any, I, I knew well enough to not give them any reason to, um, I guess, in my mind, even though I had this nervous breakdown, I was very untrustworthy, uh, untrusting of, the system of it all. Well, we've seen movies how people just, like, freak out and get thrown in straight jackets, or they have, like, these big burly men, like, come up out of doors, and, like, one person has a syringe. And we have no idea if this is just Hollywood, or this actually happens when someone is about to, like, legally take over your mental state for at least a 72-hour hold. Um, Mm -hmm. Unless you, you know, go through it, you have no idea if what the movies are actually doing or anything is actually true so the only thing that you have to go off of is that is you're like I I know that they could come out and do this this or this so be on my best behavior right I was like I had no idea what's going on I was you know I went down we lived in a second story apartment at the time and you know they kind of like held my elbow to make sure I didn't fall down the stairs and I was just like, why are you touching me? Like, I can walk on my own. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like this whole, like, what What do you think I'm going to do in this stairwell right now? Um, but then also, then the EMTs, you know, the, the lady, she was she was the kindest one. Um, she kind of gave me, she's like, you know, I know this isn't your fault. This was just hormones. And I was like, that doesn't really make me feel better, but thank you. <laughs> you right. Know? At least you're trying. Yeah, like, cricket. But then when you get to the hospital, um, they put me in this, like, little side room. It was a small room. Um, and they brought in a security guard, a male security guard, a female nurse, and then both the EMTs. And they had me stripped down completely naked in front of all of them. And they were kind of, like, surrounding me doing it because they were, I guess, looking for weapons as I was undressing. You know, I didn't I didn't get patted down naked, but all but. I mean it was bend around with I was I was being treated like I just committed a crime of some sort. And um, you're a mom who is having a postpartum episode after a undiagnosed nervous breakdown after 
pulling out her hair and not feeling it because you have so much adrenaline running from your body. Then you go to a facility that's supposed to help you and they strip you down naked per their protocol, might I add, and guidelines to check you for weapons in your postpartum body that you're obviously quivering in. Was there, were there any, besides the EMT that's like, it's your hormones, which is super great. It's like someone telling you you're on your period. Um, Thank you for the fucking reminder, right? Um, But where's the empathy and compassion in this situation? Like, are they, here's the place where you get help. We treat you like criminals, even though you have no idea what's going on with your mind. There was none of that. It was, um, you know, they had their job to do, and I was just boxes to check off. And I was just, you know, um, she, she literally, uh, as I took each thing off, one of the nurses would, like, write a des- description of what that thing was, and, like, my phone, and I had my phone on me. I can't remember. I think I had my purse with me. I think my husband had me my purse with me. Before I left. I'm pretty sure I did. And so, anyways, they're like basically just making sure that they're checking all their boxes to make sure I didn't like accuse them of stealing something. Or, you know, they went through my purse and they're like, she has her phone, she has her wallet, she has this, she has that. Um, Went through that and then each article of clothing and then they gave me the gown, put me on a gown. And mind you, this was. November in Michigan, so it's fucking cold. <laughs> like, so... Like, so, capital F. F. Like, F. Worse, and first of all, if you're a snow person, Michigan's your place. If you're not, don't go there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so horrible. And I was freezing. Like, I just remember feeling on top of this horrible... Um, experience that I just went through I'm like actually shivering from being cold too and they give you this little tiny thin blanket so they they put me in a gown and a pair of socks and they take me to another room they walk me through this hallway and take me to another room EMTs leave I'm I've been calmed down at this point for a good little while I don't I'm not going to guess how long but you know I was talking holding conversations answering their questions, giving them whatever information they wanted. Um, Not acting like a criminal. Not acting like a criminal at all. And I sit down and I look around this room and, like, the TV is behind plexiglass. It's like this little kitty remote that has, like, the bubble button. You know what I'm talking about? Like, so I pull out a button and get a spring under it or something. I don't know. I mean, I think about this room, like, still to this day, I'm just like, are you what helping else? or hindering? You know? Yeah. That's what I would go back to over and over. It's, it's such a horrible environment. You've got this cold room with these fluorescent lights, and they're, they've made it very, you know, clear. And I, I look at my surroundings, and I get sick to my stomach because I'm just like, suddenly everything's kind of catching up with me. Like, the adrenaline's kind of subsiding, and I'm... I'm processing what every, everything that's just happened in the last couple hours and, uh, or the last hour. I mean, this all happened really fast. Um, and I go to get sick 
I get sick to my stomach and I go to throw up and realize I don't have a garbage can. Like they didn't even give me a garbage can. So I tried to hold my vomit until I could get far enough away from the bed. I ran across the room and I was like keeping over in the corner of the room on the floor. I didn't have anything else to keep in. Yeah, like what else are you supposed to do? There was a sink there, but it had like a, um, uh, almost like a tray or something over it that was latched on and there's like a little hole where the water could go down but you couldn't like I guess because they didn't want you fill in the sink and oh obviously yeah yeah I mean again you're not you're basically in a holding container for we don't know if she's going to harm herself or others so yeah you don't have many options right now I'm surprised it's literally not just like a whole padded place with the fact that you said bed surprised me yeah, well, no, there was, I mean, if you want to call it, yeah. <laughs> there, was a, there was a, you know, a two-inch thick mattress. Okay, on. okay, that's, I'm like, well, it's a podcast, we got to picture stuff, so you say bed, I'm like, you don't get a trash can or a sink that you can drown yourself in, but you have a metal bed. Nope, it's a two-inch mattress on the floor. Got it. All right, back on track. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so now we've we got you know, you've got nothing that you can actually do much with. Um, oh, and- my question. You go into this room after already going through the traumatizing evaluation that you went through. Do you have any idea when you're going to get out of this room or if you're going to get out of this room? No, I thought I was leaving that room to a whole day. I thought they were going to send me to a facility. At that point, I, I'm looking around. I'm thinking, maybe this is. I don't know, maybe this is just, you know, the transitional room because, you know, maybe they're going to take me somewhere else. But I had no idea um, when I was getting out, if I was getting out, what was going on and being said about me outside the room, you know. um, There was a social worker that had called and talked to my husband before she ever came and talked to me. That makes zero sense to me. I mean... She wanted his account of what happened, um, which I get. You know, the one I had to call the ambulance, who was the one that, you know, had to go through it, too. Um, but I was the one in the hospital. <laughs> she probably come talk to me first. <laughs> right. I would think. I don't know. But, no, she she came in and she said, well, I spoke with your husband. And I was just like, he here? Like, he's supposed to be at home with the kids. There's snow on the road. Like, don't take my kids out in the car. And now I called them. He's like, oh, cool. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Which, I mean, I know in a different situation that protocol is, like, 100% necessary. I guess with yours, the one that, I guess it shows that the guidelines and the check boxes don't really fit everybody because... Even though you had to go get checked out, you still seemed like of sound mind by the time you were talking to people. And then even before you even got in the holding, like, again, it's not like no straight jacket needles, nothing to, like, calm you down or anything. So your story shows a really good example of how, like, maybe these guidelines really don't fit everybody, even though everybody's walking in for, like, some mental health thing. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're right. And you're, in my opinion, alone. Um, in your situation, I would have came and talked to you and then called your husband. Right. And I was, honestly, I feel like that's probably how it should have been handled, but it really wasn't the end of it. That doesn't bother me. 
It's yeah. Black, you know, they had to speak with him anyways. I think it was just looking back now, the principal is like, I didn't even get the decency of being talked to first. Yeah. I didn't even, even get the decency of telling them how I was feeling in that moment. Or I was just sitting in a, in a room isolated, completely isolated, not knowing what's going on out there. And nobody, aside from coming and getting vitals, and they're saying the doctor will be in with you in a minute. Um, I think I saw the doctor for, if he was in that room two minutes, I don't know. I don't even know if it was two minutes. You know, it was like a... It was a checklist. It it was. It was a checklist. He kind of went through and he's like, okay, well, he seemed to be doing better now. And I was like, just fine, better, but... Of course, I'm not going to say that. Right? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, whatever I have to so say to get like, out of this facility. Mm-hmm. So oh, what, yeah, are, make- what are the steps after that? So then um, I get home that night. So like I said, it was Michigan and it was snowing and the roads were getting bad. And they asked me how I was supposed to get home. And I said, well, my husband's at home with the kids. He could come pick me up, but I really don't want him to bring them out if they don't have to. I said, oh, well, we can provide transportation home. And I was like, oh, perfect, great. So about 30, 40 minutes later, the cop came and picked me up to take me home because that's the transportation home, the police officer. Interesting. I was like, okay. And and you sit in the back of the car, which I did not know this at the time, but some of these police cars now, um, you know, haven't spent a lot of time in one before, so I... (laughs) Not knowledgeable on the back of police cars, eh? Yeah, well, no, I don't make a habit of it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought there was, you know, like, still, like, the metal bars that separated the back seat from the front seat and whatever. No, it's a metal box. It was a, it was an SUV, and it was a box that, I'm a six-foot woman, okay? I'm tall. You, you know I'm tall. And I just had a baby, so I'm at one of the heaviest weights I've ever been. And I've got this metal box, and I'm literally squished. Okay, I'm trying to give you a visual and we're doing audio. Okay. <laughs> You're hilarious. No, I didn't know that they were like this anymore because I am like you. I do not frequent the back of cop cars. Right. Yeah, it's not and, something that I wake up and I'm like, how am I going to get back there today, folks? Right. And, no, it's, it's a, it was actually a metal box. And then there was, like, a cutout where I could talk to the officer in the front seat because he had to ask me about um, directions to my house. He's like, oh, is it up there? Because we actually lived up the road from a Buddhist temple. So he's like, very weird. He's like, is it over by the Buddhist temple? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, yes. (laughs) Nope. But other than that, he didn't say anything to me. It was very, all right, let's get you home. And I'm sitting in a metal box. Now, I'm not handcuffed or anything. I'm not a criminal, but I sure felt like it. Right. Um, I mean, anybody would in that situation. I go home, and um, it's late, so I'm kind of going over the events with my husband, talking to him about it or whatever. And he said, by the way, 
the officer that lives here said that CPS is going to come over tomorrow. I was like, really? And because I had a nervous breakdown and kids were here, I had to be being fit by the state to CPS that I wasn't going to be a danger or that we had an action plan if something ever happened again or, you know, another set of checklists. Um, so anyways, my husband told me, you know, they're probably going to stop by at some point tomorrow. And he said, you know, the officer said that they would call first, though. So the next morning I get up. Um, I'm feeding Ember. I'm still trying to gather my wits. I mean, it, I know we're going through this because, you know, for time sensitivity, but I can't stress enough how scary and how hopeless at points through this episode. I don't know. I don't really want to call it an episode, but during this experience, experience, this crisis, how isolated I felt, how lonely and scared and just completely stripped of any kind of hope for, it was a short period of time, but it was long enough to scare me and um, have some very dark thoughts. And, and go down a very dark path. And even though I was a sound mind at this point, I'm still today still healing from that. I'm still processing that trauma because it's not something you don't you don't feel that kind of fear or that kind of pain and you forget about it in a day or two. That's not something that just goes away. And um I'm still trying to wrap my head around everything that's happened, and now there's a knock on my door, and I've got a CPS person outside my door, and they want to speak with my son, check out my daughter, and talk to my husband. It's really nice, don't get me wrong, but it was the same thing. And, and meanwhile, I'm trying to process everything that's going on, um, and he's asking me questions like, what are you going to do if it happens again? Um, well, hopefully it doesn't happen again. Let's just go with that. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. It was, so, it I mean, out, outside of obviously, like, their checklist, when you and your husband sit down, you're like, how do we move forward now that we know that this is a possibility in our lives? Like for you, I know that we've we've talked off the record about what you're doing now to help yourself and move forward, but also give yourself a lot of grace for where you are in your journey and understanding that, um, you know, you're kind of, you're in that cocoon phase, right? Like you really, you really are in some deep introspective um, parts of your shadow work, I guess is the right way to say it. So, um, yeah, like, how do you, how do you combat that? Cause obviously, um, talking to me, I'm always going to bring spirit into it, but do you, do you feel a blend of spiritual work and obviously stuff with your physical presence coming in, into play with each other? Absolutely. Um, if it, this catapult, this event catapulted my own spiritual healing, it, it put me in a place where I realized, you know, what I was doing wasn't working, and um, that I still had a lot of, lot of unprocessed trauma, 
um, I started doing inner child healing, um, which, yeah, it's funny. Uh, my best friend Carla, she also tried to do um, take her life. Uh, and so also, you know, during all this time, I had a best friend that had been through this, and I reached out to her, and I was just like, what do we do now? You know, like, I didn't, I thought I got it then, but I get it now. And how do I move on? And then also with my husband, you know, she was like, you really need to have your husband in on it. You need to be honest with him about it. She was the one that was like, she's already kind of been through the other side. And she's already, you know, she had her issue, um, I won't say issue, she had her event, um, I think it was probably about 10 years ago, um, so she's, you know, past the healing, she's well healed now, um, and she says, you have to be honest with your husband, and so, you know, after, like, the CPS worker left, or whatever, my husband and I are just sitting here talking about what happened, and how we go forward, um, one of the things that I was very adamant about, and I'm still adamant about today, is making time for that spiritual healing and making time for that, um, just reflection, you know. Do you journal and, a lot? What's that? Do you journal a lot? Um, yeah, I used to. I haven't recently. I do a lot for my shadow work, and I separate my notebooks out based on, like, what version of myself I'm supposed to go into. Um, but I have a story that actually popped up in my head that I forgot about that you actually brought up when your friend's advice said you have to share it with your husband. Um, when Landon and I got together, uh, I never really talked to him about a lot of the like the stuff in my head that I've been telling way too many people on Spotify. And, um, you know, when we, we got together, we obviously knew that there would be some about like a year or two where we're just trying to figure out how to like live together. And, you know, what are your farts smell like? And, you know, do you flush? Do you pick up your socks? You know, like that, you know, beginner stuff. Um, and I knew, I knew that I had this like little, little friend of mine in the back of my head that would come visit me and be like, okay, like, are you ready to come dance, you know, with me? Um, and I don't, I think it was like two years into it, maybe. I mean, I've had like a couple little outbursts and, you know, that's just who I am. I'm very passionate at expressing myself. But like, like you, I had like a bunch of stuff in my undertow and, um, when we moved in together, he had a gun in the closet and he showed me where to use it, how to use it, where the bullets are, where it's kept. Like, hey, if an intruder comes in the house, this is how you do this. Like, I grew up on a farm. I know how to use a gun. So I was just very appreciative that he, like, he had that intruder plan. Um, right. And I've lived in a house with guns before and I always believed, you know, the easiest way out would just literally go grab one and do it, especially when I was younger. I was like, just get out, right? Um, so, uh, just like things were crashing down on me. I definitely think it's just like the tower moment in my life where 
all the things that were false needed to fall. But obviously, like the ego in me, the person that had built this whole life up, this whole facade um, was like, no, I refuse to let this down. This is my identity. This is me. And I started having, I mean, literally just like a divide of myself is the best way I could decide. And um, like you said, I had a fear of the, of my own emotions that were pumping through me. Um, At the time, I didn't really feel like I had anybody to talk to um, just because, I mean, you went to high school with me. Um, I'm a very passionate person. I was just born passionate and I love speaking passionately about things that I love or it used to be things that pissed me off, but I've changed my tune. Um, but at the same time, like I still had like this, this darkness in me that would like almost call to me almost. And I thought that I had just kind of like put that baby to bed. Like I, you know, I had a whole new life just like you. I was like, I'm kind of immune now. Like I've figured it out. I used to struggle with it. Now I don't, it's totally fine. Um, and what, like whatever just kind of like snapped in me, I just, um, I didn't really know what to do. I couldn't call anybody and just say, hey, I'm starting to have thoughts of suicide again um, because like they didn't, they didn't know how to hold the space for that sentence. They just knew how to react. And I didn't need someone to react. I needed someone to hold space for me. And since I had lost that soundboard, um, I had to walk up to my delightfully just even keeled, always chill, never panicked husband who's never heard this come out of my mouth, but I guess he was my boyfriend at the time. I should take that back or fiance. I think it was a fiance. And I was like, Hey, um, I'm just having some really like dark thoughts. I haven't really figured out where they come from yet. I was like, but, um, I had an episode like this when I was younger and I actually had to have somebody like take the gun out of the house that I was living in. I'm like, um, so while I'm still strong enough to ask for help, I was like, I need you to take the gun out of the house. And again, he's not knowledgeable or educated on how to really react like this. And he's just like, I don't understand like how you have these thoughts and why you feel this way. And I was like, I don't really understand it either. I just know that, um, I need the gun out of the house. I think I'll just feel like I'll feel safer knowing that I know that it's not there. And I'm not telling you that I'm going to pull the trigger, I said, but I'm, I'm telling you that I'm scared of the emotions in my body. And I just kind of want, like, I want that out of the house. And he goes, well, do I need to take the knives out of the house? Like, what else do I have to do? And I go, no, I would never kill myself with a knife. And he goes, but you would kill yourself with a gun. And I said, but I would kill myself with a handgun. And he was just like, uh, okay. And again, like I knew that I wasn't going to do it. I was just very fearful of the thoughts in my head. And this was me protecting myself from the self that I didn't have a relationship with at the time. I have a supremely close relationship with my shadow self now. Um, I, it's like, she's like an avatar in my head and she's like dressed up. So like, I know like when it comes in either like egotistically or even like depressively or like the, you know, the ideation comes back, so to speak. Um, and I've worked for over four years at this relationship to not only be able to talk about suicide so openly, um, but also just understand my own journey. Like, the idea of this series came up is because I had an episode and I hadn't had an episode. I hate to call them an episode, right? Like I had a right. moment. I had right. 
I had a calling, right? Um, I think obviously with direct experience, direct experience, you can get much bigger compassion. And a few weeks ago, (coughs) to get through it fast, the energy was just super heavy on me. And I couldn't separate myself from anything that was coming in. Hi, friends. Um, And I remember just like sitting down. Yoga and meditation is definitely my medication. Um, But I just remember like sitting down and like breathing and just like really connecting with myself and being like, where is this coming from? I know I don't want to die. I know I don't want to die. Why do I feel like dying? Why do I feel like dying? And I, I journaled and I wrote it out. And it, it was literally probably the worst that I had felt in so many years. And um, I felt like it was just like there was a bunch of stuff getting ready to come up in my life. And I feel like that was, you know, those were the thunderclouds that were coming towards me. And I was like watching. Um, So I reached out to another one of my friends from high school. And we were talking about how one of our mutual friends recently attempted it and survived. Um, And obviously no one's going to talk about it. Um, and I'm just like, how do we, how do we talk about this? And he's like, dude, you have a podcast. He's like, do a suicide series. And he had requested that months ago and I was still building the templates for all the shows. And then when this one, this new one came on, I was just like, oh my God, like I really have to do it. I really have to do a suicide series. And I'm not speaking from a pedestal, right? I'm not speaking from a healed perspective of someone who can like guide you through a whole lie of, Hey, if you feel like killing yourself, don't worry. There's a way out. Like I don't get to speak from that. I get to speak from, I see you. I am you. I like, I am you. I hear you. Even though we have completely different experiences, we're both still having the same thought about not waking up tomorrow. And, uh, for me, I don't like, I don't mind being my own little test rabbit now and like going down my own little rabbit hole. But, um, for those that are just beginning on trying to understand their shadow side, you know, that's my caution to you is you're going into your shadow side. You're going into a part of yourself that you've suppressed for years. So it's not going to feel good when it comes up. And, you know, if, if you do shadow work on a Tuesday, you might not feel it till Friday, which kind of sucks because you're like, right. you don't pick your healing, right? Like, I'm going to sit down and journal for two hours and I'm going to feel better and I'm going to put this away. You're like, you can't compartmentalize your healing once it comes out and once you're purging. So, you know, it really doesn't work that way. But um, there's my little, like, fun little tree branch episode of how I'm like, hey, it comes in so many different ways. I know the most successful human beings in the world and I have held their hand while they're like, what is the point, you know? And that, I think it's really important. We, we kind of touched on a couple things here that, um, I, first of all, I would just like to applaud your husband, now husband and fiance or whatever, yeah. taking that, initiative um i've also i not to that extent i um had you know a gun and i told my husband to lock it up and he kept the keys just so i didn't have access you know to he just kept the keys and then when i was i, I did take the key back and i locked some of my other stuff up in that um safe and so i was like you know i feel good enough now that 
I can go into that safe and get my jewelry box, you know, or whatever. Um, but that's so important. Um, I posted a meme the other day on Facebook. Um, you can't control the people around you, but you can control the people around you. I love that one. And, yeah, that is, whether you have felt suicide ideation at any level, whether you've been suicidal, whether you've just had a bad day, it is so important on who you surround yourself with and who your support system is. And I'm going to say that I know it's not always easy. You know, you, you see things on especially on the internet, you're like, find your tribe. And you and I come from the same place, but we're living in very different cities than where we grew up. You don't always have a tribe ready-made right there for you to just pick up when you need help, you know. So I do recognize that. But just having one person that you can be, that you can safely say, hey, I'm having these thoughts, and that can that can make the world a difference um, once you acknowledge that. Because I'm not going to sit here and say that I haven't had suicide ideation since then. I have. I I, I mean when I when I went to reschedule, you know, um, we had recently lost our dog, and you know she lived a long happy life, um, and. But we had rescheduled our interview, you know, and then life started happening. And I was like, am I really the right person to talk about this? Because I was, like, right in the midst of just feeling like I was losing it again. I was like, you know, this is exactly why I need to talk about it. Because whether I feel healed or not healed, this experience is so common. It happens to so many people, and we are just not talking about it. And um, having a person that you can talk about it to or having a resource that you can go to and have that kind of I get it person or I'm here and you're safe with me person is crucial. I really think that every person really needs to focus on having someone like that in their life or a resource like that in their life. I 100% agree. I uh, was reading statistics today and it said one, min one person kills themselves every 11 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we can save everybody, but I think the more that we talk about these things and we bring people on that are vulnerable, like are okay with being vulnerable enough and sharing this stuff. Um, again, like it's taken both of us a lot of years to be able to share the story. So for someone that's listening and going through it right now, like don't feel like just because you don't want to share your story, it just shows that you have to tell your story until you're healed. You know, you're, you're going to cry right. a lot. There's a million healing modalities. Um, for me, like, I believe in karma and reincarnation. Um, I've studied it since I dropped out of college when I was 19. And I just became, like, you know, my own little librarian. And karma and reincarnation make a lot of sense to me. Um, a lot of the things that we go through as far as, like, life lessons and soul evolution. And um, it's so easy, especially going through all the spiritual work to have the physical world just seem like it's also meaningless. Like, why are we getting up and working and going back when, you know, when 
the earth was given to us, everything was free. This doesn't really make sense. Who's doing all this? You know, and you start asking yourself all these questions because you're going down a different spiritual path than what we originally grew up with, which is 100% a completely different episode. Right. Um, but, you know, I say these things to like help and warn and like, hey, these, this is what I've been through so far with going down my own rabbit hole of introspection. And here's some warning signs because this whole let me go find myself, it's not all love and light. It's not all crystals and yoga and, hey, what's my new smoothie recipe and uh, freaking avocados are like my jam. You know, there's so much dark stuff that people aren't talking about. And I think it's important that people like you and me and anybody listening come forward and we start like dredging our subconscious, dredging the conscious memories that you think do not fit in with keeping up with the Joneses. Because I think this is what the future is, is us sharing the truth. I think we're all done with the facade. We're all done with the BS holidays of everything's fine. Let's take some pictures and move on. I think it's time to tell the truth. It's the age of Aquarius, right? Like, all this darkness has to come out. Right. So. Um, what, I just lost my train of thought. Good. I just um, lost my train of thought. No, it's great. I was honestly just getting ready to thank you so much for telling us everything that you have. Um, like I said, you made me tear up multiple times. Um, oh. Even when I was prepared for the story, just because as a woman, my heart goes out to you. Um we haven't been safe in a long time, us speaking for women. We know this, and we're bringing it into the spotlight. And I think that you've brought up moments where things can definitely be looked at and a lot more compassion can come into play. And, you know, for me, being being a mom has really opened my eyes. Absolutely. Especially yeah. to like the hurt and pain of like other women. Like I am a woman's woman and I wasn't, I wanted to be that when I was younger and like now I am and I'm like the biggest fangirl cheerleader of anybody that's doing anything with your life. If you woke up and you're like, oh my gosh, I just, I just learned to post a meme to Facebook. I'm like, you are 96 and you are fucking rocking it, Martha. You get it. You know, like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Like, the thing I've noticed lately is, like, um, what success is in our physical world and what um, progress is. Um, it's not going to be measured the same in spiritual work. You don't, you don't get someone to walk up to you until you're healed. You know, just like your therapist isn't going to come up to you one day and go, hey, I think you're good. You don't have to see me anymore. You know, you're, the pill you pop isn't going to go, not today, boss. You got it. You know, right. so this whole culture that somehow has been made to like, let's just shove everything under the rug. I think it's time that everything comes out under the rug and figures out how to live in the life, live in the light with everything else. And, I, you know, I'm happy to be a resource. I'm happy you're here. And again, I just can't thank you so much for coming on and being so vulnerable. That's the point of this show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Um, you know kind of mirroring what you said is if, if somebody can get some sort of uh, relief at any capacity from, you know, my story or Sarah's story, um, anybody that feels like they're just struggling, especially mothers, 
um, please reach out. I mean, find whatever resource works for you. Um, I did kind of want to throw in there one that I found was really cool, and I want to, um, if you guys are into meditation, I just found this really cool, well, I found it a while ago, but it's called Insight Timer, Insight Timer, and it's all free guided meditations, and that's a really good, helpful, um, I don't know, if, sometimes if you're just getting really worked up about something, I can't stop and say, I need to breathe and think. Um, and so I use guided meditations, and I found that one. And I just think sharing, like you said, it's the age of information. Sharing what works and what doesn't work for us, too, is also a way of saying, hey, these are your options. If you're going through this, there's other options. And like you said, there's different modes, also different tools and just different um don't feel like that you're, you don't have any options because there are. Do you think years ago, if they would have given you anxiety medication with also like a guided meditation app that you could have saved yourself from the compounding of your diagnosis coming out to play in your nervous breakdown? I wish that there was more, um, emphasis on, I don't want to say just Eastern medicine or whatever, but yes. I like a blend more. in both. Because yeah. the, the thing that haunted me the most about what you said was like, you know, I don't have my pill, so I don't really know what to do now. So then I thought as like a mental health facility or something, I'm like, take your pill and we're not going to teach you anything else about how to regulate the emotions or anything in your body. And me, it's 100% breath work, like meditation, breath work, just six seconds in, six seconds out, will really connect the heart and the brain. You know, a lot of things happen where you kind of get, what is it, like cognitive dissonance almost, and then like your critical thinking is completely just like somebody just hacks on it. So um, that's the, I love that you wrap the episode up with like, hey, this is the app that I recommend. Because that's the only thing I thought when you were just like, I don't have, I don't have a pill to regulate me and, and I have no idea what I'm actually supposed to do with my body. So you getting in tune with your body and like those guided meditations, I mean, if you have to be medicated, you have to be medicated. I think that's just your path. I'm not saying, you know, you can't do it without it. But the fact that you have both, I mean, I think that the future is Western and Eastern blending in, you know, holistic psilocybin, microdosing, like whatever, all of this comes into play. I just think we need facilitators and, you know, even doctors to really get on the same page that we all want to help each other, you know, and we all right. learn in different ways. So I will definitely link Insight Timer down below because I think that that's great. Do you have anything else that you want to say to anybody out there? Um, I think we covered most of it. I'd just like to thank um, you know, everybody that let me use their stories, you know. Yeah, especially yeah. Sarah's mom. I really appreciate appreciate the permission for her. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, Tammy and Dave, and thank you, Carla, for, you know, I also got permission from Carla um, to use their stories as well. Um, and just know that healing isn't linear, and it's a constant, 
constant thing that you're going to constantly be doing, but, you know, it's worth it. And don't forget to enjoy life in the meantime. That's what you're here for, too. Yeah. Yeah. Stop, smell the roses when the wind touches your face. Feel like it's Mother (laughs) Earth coming to just wrap you up. Well, I feel like today's song is really fitting, too. Like, I couldn't have probably fit a better song for this outro is kind of how I feel. So uh, my concert wife, Kate, and I went and saw Incubus in Wichita, Kansas at Wave um, a couple Octobers ago. And um, Drive and The Warmth came on, and both of them made me bawl my absolute eyes out. I actually had a resurgence of suppressed memories after this concert come out, and I had to go through, like, a very uh, deep, like, two-week expansive journaling trying to get all of these things come back. So um, I love music more than anything. I think that's just like known and I should probably stop saying it every episode, but music's helped me heal 10 times more than like anybody on earth. And Incubus alone was one of the bands that um, I used as a healing modality at the time. Um, I had like severe memory loss from that time. And then I literally just happened to be standing in front of them in Wichita, Kansas, and um, all my memories started coming back to me. So I chose Drive today from that concert. I'm pretty sure I'm singing in the background, and it doesn't sound good, and I do not give a shit. Um, (laughs) I was crying. I was holding uh, my concert wife, Kate, and I was holding my friend Karen Alex's hand, and I was just literally emanating so much love and understanding and peace because... I knew that somewhere out there, somebody like didn't want to make it. And this song specifically makes me think of, you know, really taking back hold of your life, finding your light, finding your purpose. And, you know, whatever tomorrow brings, I'll be there, you know, and really making that promise to yourself, like, hey, babe, we're going to get through this tonight. And when we wake up tomorrow, we got this. So here's my clip. And thank you again for joining me, Lisa. This is the Hoosier Media Network, your home for podcasting.